Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 76 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Wednesday afternoon, May 30th. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. I do not have 110 coronets close at hand. <laughs> 76 podcast episodes led the big parade. Yeah, well, you know, we got, we got I, I guess... Bobby, it's Wednesday. I feel weird. It's like it's it's Memorial Day has totally thrown off my pattern. You would think that because we took like, you know, eight full days or whatever it was between episodes, we'd have so much to talk about. Um, and for once, we really don't. Yeah. Uh, it, although we have a we have a lot to say when it comes to uh, frivolity. But I think we should spare the listeners. We shouldn't start any the of that. We, sh- we shouldn't start the fire yet. Don't. Oh, God. Don't start the fire now. We'll start the fire in probably 25 minutes, though, because we, we have what amounts to sort of a run through the news, some light touches on an array of topics. What, what have we got, Steve? Well, so, I mean, we have some updates from the DOJ side of the world where you want to talk about some developments in terrorism prosecutions. Even even a hacking prosecution. Even a hacking prosecution. Yeah. Heavens to Betsy. Yeah, th- and those are just sort of news blurbs. We got to use your and my favorite word in quarate to describe the latest bizarreness that is the Guantanamo military commissions. Just every week there is some other bizarreness going on. And by the way, there is a bizarre footnote to the bizarreness, a revelation that actually might matter for, dare I say, Dalmazi. Everybody Uh, drink. Oh, wow. Okay, so I'm on the edge of my seat there. You already Uh, know what it is. Well, hey, come on. It's a show. we got to build drama. (laughs) Um, You want to talk a bit about sanctions land and some developments on that front? Yeah. Again, we'll just note some recent developments uh, relating to the, uh, well, one of the tools that is in the presidential toolkit in large part because Congress put it there, the ability of the president to do things relating to tariffs, to do things relating to sanctions. So we'll note a few developments there. Um, we'll look north of the border. North of the oh, speaking of borders, north of the border. We'll go north of the border for a rare, first. a rare, a rare trip to to our friends, to our intrepid friends up north. Our intrepid friends, and you uh, know who you are. Yeah, that's right. We'll say more about that in a minute. There's just an interesting. By the way, do you know they changed the words to the Canadian national anthem? I, I did. What did they change? Uh, to make it less gendered. Uh, so they took out the so uh, in all uh, uh, they changed the she's? Uh, they changed our sons to all of us. In all thy sons command is now in all of us command. In all of us command. Yeah. Okay. All right. That's good to know. Um, we actually that's like our second straight episode talking about changes to the words of national anthems. Indeed, that is so. So we'll have to. Think, but but because okay, so next time, don't announce it. Just slip that in there <laughs> if you can come up with one, and we'll see if any savvy listeners are paying that. Changing much Changing words, but same music. That's the criteria. Changing words. Okay, that sounds like a frivolity ca- category. Indeed. Well, we also like frivolity could be like, what are the best national anthems? But we'll come back to that. Hmm. Um, oh, what you know? Just while we're on the topic of uh-oh. frivolities, what if, <laughs> what if we go with? Uh, Remember be- how we got commentary about how we. We never even get completely through the table of contents. I want to I want to maintain listener expectations okay. by digressing a bit to say that we could have a topic for frivolity as we stay with our music theme a little bit. Um, songs where one uh, musician sues another for ripping it off, ripping them off. Mm. So I'm thinking here. Well, I'm not even going to say what I'm thinking of because I'm thinking of a great one. The but you know, the, the, two two well-known songs the where there's litigation. The litigation over, uh, m- yeah. Law and music. Law and music. Okay, we'll get to that. Hey, associate dean, can I teach that class next year? Uh, done as an <laughs> overload. Oh, no. <laughs> All right. Um, speaking of borders, there have been some pretty nasty headlines in the last week, um, especially at the southern border on the immigration front. A couple of different stories, Bobby, I think have gotten conflated in some circles. But really, I think worth saying a quick word about the sort of 
what's new and what isn't new with regard to the Trump administration's policy for folks either arriving at checkpoints or trying to cross surreptitiously, and what some of these headlines are and where they're coming from. Well, and speaking of the administration, uh, we can't go an episode without some Trumplandia, and so the immigration story will be part of that. But uh, we should check in with the Mueller investigation and uh, maybe have a thing or two to say there. And and the complete demolition of Spygate. Oh, is, Spygate. Is, is that over yet? Is Spygate a thing? I don't think it is anymore. Not I think, anymore. I think, I think Trey Gowdy has, I, I mean, so it's still a thing with regard to the New England Patriots, right? The original Spygate. Oh. The OG Spygate. <laughs> Episode title, OG Spygate. Wait, wait, what's the OG? I don't know the reference. Oh, you're looking at me like I'm from Mars. You don't know what OG means? What? Well, I... I uh, does it mean overgold? No. All right. What what context are you using it in? Um, I I I mean, OG is something the kids say, right? Like the it's the OG. It's like the original. I don't know what does it even stand for. I'm embarrassed to say that I use it all the time. All right. Well, so I uh, super, original original gangster. Oh, uh, I super did not know that. All yes, right. Yes. Right, so impressed. the OG Spygate, I think, might be our episode title. Um, and then we will conclude with some frivolity. We'll probably squeeze in a quick Supreme Court update in there somewhere. Maybe when we talk about. Dalmazi. Yeah, that's probably a good idea. And, and, you know, I think we can do a little spoiler alert. There will be no spoilers because the Supreme Court continues to sit on most of the really interesting cases. It, have you ever, has there ever been this much no. of a, of a no. backlog of key cases from Not earlier? just key cases. I mean, we got to Memorial Day with over half of the decisions and argued cases outstanding, yeah. right? Which is really surprising, especially, good. I mean, you know, I'm in the midst of working on the, sup, the annual supplement for the National Security and Counterterrorism Law casebooks, we have like these big placeholders. Like if Supreme in, Court insert does Insert Carpenter here. Insert Carpenter here, insert travel ban here. There's even a potential placeholder for- Dalmazi. Dalmazi. All so, right. You know, ugh. All right, okay. so that's our table of contents. Let's we'll get to the in. frivolity at the end. Um, let's do a quick uh, visit with our friends at DOJ. What's been happening in the world of counterterrorism prosecutions every now and then? We just touch base. The fact that we don't do it every week doesn't mean nothing's happening every week. We just normally don't report on this stuff because we're so pressed for time on the more substantive topics. Uh, but we have a little extra time this, this week, so I want to flag uh, a very recent development. This is the case of Malik Jones. Malik Jones is a 30 is a 33-year-old man from Baltimore. He just got Steve a 35-year sentence. 35 years. So he's he's coming out of jail at 68. Um, he pled guilty last September to three counts, all relating to Al-Shabaab and his journey to join Al-Shabaab. One was conspiracy to provide material support to Al-Shabaab, so a classic conspiracy to violate 2339B. Um, one was conspiracy to receive military-type training from Al-Shabaab, and I'll, I'll say something in a minute about that particular charge. Uh, and then there was the kicker that, that led to this, I think, being a 35-year rather than 20-year sentence, carrying and using an AK-47 machine gun, RPGs, and other destructive devices in the course of doing these things. So here's the narrative. Uh, I'm going to summarize the narrative from DOJ's press release. Back in summer of 2011, uh, this guy left Baltimore to go to Somalia to join al-Shabaab. Um, here's how he got there. I always think it's interesting to see the logistics. Uh, went to New York City first, flew commercial to Kenya, uh, in route, stopped in Morocco and the UAE, finally gets to Kenya, and then goes overland. Um, somehow he got himself to Somalia on a route that I think is, is sort of traditionally used by folks who are trying to go join al-Shabaab. Um, so he gets trained up about three months at a military training camp that al-Shabaab ran, learning how to you know work in AK-47 and RPGs, and then became part of an al-Shabaab unit, uh, the Jaish Ayman. 
and participated in a, at least one significant battle uh, where he was wounded, actually. There, he was wounded and hospitalized, but rejoined al-Shabaab afterwards. So how did he, how did he ever come into custody? Well, um, in December 2015, the Somali authorities, which do exist and have control in, <laughs> in some areas, right? Not in the hinterlands where al-Shabaab reigns, but in other places. He was trying to get a boat because he was trying to get across uh, the Gulf of Aden to Yemen, which is itself a, a disturbing point and it, and it highlights something we know from the old war Sami case which you know once was talked about a lot there is there is a traffic between al-shabaab and aqap between somalia and yemen so but it's also an opportunity to catch guys like this so 35 year sentence once again steve the federal civilian criminal justice system proves quite effective in securing a, a, a conviction that no one's lambasting as raising questions about the fairness of the process. It's entirely legitimate. It's not raising eyebrows. And it's going to put this guy in jail for three and a half decades. It's almost like when people talk about the criminal justice system being unable to handle high-profile terrorism cases, they're full of crap. Uh, that's one way to look at it, and I couldn't argue with it. <laughs> you, you'd like to, th- yeah. uh, you'd like you, to think so, wouldn't you? you or, or, or to quote the British House of Cards, you might think that. You might very well think that. I couldn't possibly comment. By the way, what happened to House of Cards, you know, after the whole Kevin Spacey debacle? There is going to be another season, but I think they had to, like, you know, de-Frank Underwood it. So do you think that, uh, is this an opportunity to refresh what was already a troubled franchise because the real world got so much <laughs> so much crazier than the well, show it's like can Veep, be? Right? I mean, so Karen loves Veep, and I hated Veep, right? Because it was so painful to watch, and Karen loved how awkward and painful it was. Yeah. Except that now Veep isn't that funny, because it's kind of realistic. <laughs> right. All right, anyway. The whole genre looks so much, so much has been rude. <laughs> well, I mean, when, when reality is this ridiculous, it's hard to take fiction seriously. That's right. Okay, so um, let me give you another quick DOJ uh, visitation. Quickly. Kareem Baratov is a 23-year-old Canadian national. Just got a five-year sentence. You may recall him from such hits as the uh, <laughs> Russian FSB operation where they the FSB worked through a couple of basically kind of private sector hackers uh, to hack Yahoo. And it was a massive breach. Uh, he just got a five-year sentence and plus a, uh, a hefty dose of restitution as well. You may be you know, wondering, well, how did he end up, end up in the United States? Well, remember, he was in Canada, so he was taken into custody there. And he actually uh, waived extradition. I think it was clear he was going to be extradited. So it was a plea agreement. There were other defendants. But that's probably enough from DOJ. Steve, let's turn to that other court system. How, how- Is it a court system? It's it's a system. So so actually, this reminds me. So I got into a little bit of a, a tête-à-tête on Twitter with an anonymous Twitterer um, who knows a whole lot about the military commissions. Oh, this is the thing you showed me the other day Indeed. when we were doing our training, which and, we'll and, talk about. And, in and a it's fascinating because the, this anonymous Twitterer, whoever he or she may be, um, is very well versed with specific pages from thousand-page-long transcripts of hearings before Judge Spath. So this is a person who clearly has a lot of actual accurate knowledge about what goes on in those proceedings. And a very different view. Well, you're leaving out the best part. Who does this person purport online to be? No, nobody. I mean, it's an anonymous account. I mean, the the, the account is like DC Drinker Blog or something. Okay. But I... I, Oh, oh, so you're the one that leveled the accusation. I I leveled the accusation. So at one point in this long tweet thread where we were disagreeing about how the lawyers should be behaving, I said, with all due respect, Judge Spath, (laughs) <laughs> dot dot dot, and yeah. the and the anonymous Twitter responded without without taking the bait without uh, without denying without denying it or confirming. Therefore, it, it was judged by. So no, I'm not. That's, yeah. uh, whoa, whoa, whoa! That is not what I said. I know, I, I know. I'm not leveling any accusations against <laughs> at DC Drinker Blog. 
Uh, I think it's hilarious. Uh, so I think it's clearly not Judge Spath, um, but it is kind of is interesting. Is it clearly not Judge Spath? I've, you know, I know 2018 is a little crazy, but I'm willing to go I mean, on have record. Have you been following this Brian uh, Philadelphia story? Are you saying that Judge Spath has the Philadelphia 76ers uh, team president problem? Well, all I'm saying is, so so Congressman Brendan Boyle, I think, wins Twitter for at least the day, perhaps the month. He just sent this tweet out a little while ago. He said, Colangelo's only chance to survive the investigation is if Devin Nunes leads it. <laughs> That's good. That is so. That Pops, is, that that is, is so is, crossing my world. So guys, that is if you, really if you haven't been following, Wait, tell tell the listeners because not everyone knows. So the Ringer broke this insane story yesterday about Brian Colangelo, who I believe is the general manager. I think he's president of the president, team for the Sixers, right? For the Philadelphia. 76ers. By the way, related to Jerry Colangelo, yes, yeah, son, I think. Okay, um, oh, that's too bad. And basically, five anonymous Twitter accounts, at least one of which was definitely he took responsibility for, yep. but four of which also looked like they were him, um, that were, among other things, criticizing specific players on the Sixers, disclosing personal private medical information about players on the Sixers, like giving other teams strategy about how to beat the Sixers. This is his team. No, this is cuckoo. You think it's going to cost him his job? Oh, absolutely. Are you going to get rid of all your burner accounts? Where you talk up the show. I don't know what you're talking about. Exactly. What what, what burner accounts? They're all going private the as first we speak. rule of burner accounts. Well, you know, there's a there's a there's a why there's a rumor out there that there's that a particular Supreme Court justice was almost outed on Twitter for having a, a burner account. <laughs> oh, I bet a lo- I bet a lot of people in in any kind of high pro- high profile endeavor does right. this. So listen, what I, a I, waste of time. I, no, no, hold on a second. So it's perfectly. I, I want to be clear. I think it's perfectly appropriate for high profile folks to be like anonymous on Twitter oh, yeah, as no, no. readers I'm, and observers. I'm talking about people who are promoting right. themselves right. as if they're somebody else. Or stepping into legal disputes over the Guantanamo Military Commissions. Absolutely. All right, so turning back to why we're actually talking about <laughs> No, but just, just be clear. I, so I don't think it's somebody, I don't think it's anybody who's actually literally involved where it's somehow improper for them to be weighing I actually, in. So my best guess is that it's someone in the prosecutor's office. Well, I can't be someone that, well, I guess you know from the direction of yeah, the, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah the, so. These are people, whoever's tweeting this does not like the defense lawyers, does not think that they're necessarily Acting yeah. in the best interest. I mean, like, there, you know, this is a person who I'm hard pressed to believe that there is someone who is not directly involved in this litigation who knows as much as this person knows and has the views that they do. That's fascinating. Well, watch this space or we'll not. See. Uh, he, he's been quiet. He or she's been quiet for the last week. Mm. Um, Good so, decision. Indeed. Um, but speaking of the commissions, moving away from sustaining member Al Nashiri to the 9 11 case. This fascinating order came out from the CMCR last Wednesday. Your favorite court and mine. Well, and and this is this order is just all it it just gushes why we love the CMCR. Um, so one of the 9/11 defendants, uh, Amar Albalucci, had sought a writ of mandamus, basically a preservation order, um, seeking the a, a court order to stop the government from trying to destroy particular evidence from a black site that he claims he was abused at because it might be relevant. Um, and the question was, basically the short version is, the military judge, the trial judge denied it, and so he took this appeal, this mandamus petition to the okay. CMCR. Okay. Um, at this time, the court writes in this order, um, our court can resolve uncontested motions, however, cannot address the merits of the issues raised by petitioner. Deputy Chief Judge Scott Silliman is disqualified from hearing matters related to Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, one of the other 9-11 defendants. Which we talked about previously. Right, the D.C. Circuit's August 2017 ruling ordering his recusal. Chief Judge Paulette Burton and Judge James W. Herring Jr. Listeners, remember that name, Herring. We're coming back to him in a minute. Okay. Um, We're on the panel with Deputy Chief Judge Silliman, um, and they have both recused themselves from all matters involving that case. 
Does it say why? Well, presumably, I mean, it implies that because of Silliman's recusal to avoid any possible concern of taint, right? I, that may not be yeah. necessary. I, mean, I don't yeah. want to get into I got to say, like, if that's what it was, right. that's ridiculous, in my opinion. It may, listen, I, I, I'm not defending or, I, I'm not a legal ethics expert, right? I, I think this is a case where certainly there was no obligation for them to recuse and they may have just felt like discretion was the better part of valor. Mm-mm. But, the more important point is the implication. Is the implication. Um, so both have recused themselves from all matters involving that case. This leaves only Judge Pollard and Judge Selpniks available to consider the present petition contested motions. By statute, our panels must be composed of not less than three judges on the court. Unlike, by the way, the federal courts of appeals, where a quorum is two. And that leaves them in, in quorum. It gets better. Only the chief judge and the deputy chief judge have the authority to appoint panels, even if three judges were available, and they're both recused. <laughs> so basically, this is like the peak club. Um, it is worse than the peak club because the, there's no litigation that depends upon the peak club. <laughs> that's that, right? that's putting it mildly. So the 9/11 case can't anything that has to come up to the CMCR is suddenly dead in the water. Well, this is an interesting question. So so just to be clear, this is not, I actually got this wrong when I tweeted this initially and I, and I, I corrected myself on Twitter. This is not freezing the pretrial proceedings in the 9-11 case. Those can continue in front of In front of Judge Pohl. Correct. Um, right, what just to is, be clear, because that's down at the trial level. Right, but what is, if, and, and the, the defendant's lawyers don't believe this is freezing appeals. Their position, which I think has some um, validity to it, Bobby, is that because the CMCR is in corate, they're entitled to go straight to the D.C. Circuit. Well, hallelujah. It, I, <laughs> I hope that's true. I don't know what that would be based on um, other than sort of some sort of rule of just functional necessity. Well, just I mean, right, I mean, they could argue that this order, right, that was issued last Wednesday is tantamount to an affirmance without opinion. Right, that that right, that that as so. If the Supreme Court, for, became, let's just to be highly technical yeah. about it. If they're in court, they can't do anything. They can't affirm a thing. That's true. Yeah. So I think that you could, you'd have rule, to like mandamus has a rule of necessity. Yeah. Which, by the way, is not incompatible with how mandamus is understood in its supervisory context. But you were so right to say that this really illustrates like our our ongoing theme of the CMCR is is nothing but a delaying factor at That's this right. point. That's no reflection. On, at least for me, I'm not reflecting at all on the particular things they say or do. The reality, oh, I will. Yeah, I'll, I'll reflect that's on why, the things that's, they say or do. That's why I said I'm only speaking <laughs> for me here. But at best, it just delays things that end up, if they're important at all, yep. they go to the circuit anyways. Well, so the irony is, right, this order may have the effect of allowing things to get to the D.C. Circuit faster. Do, um, is it possible I, they recuse themselves no, on a no, faint? No, uh, no, no, no. There's no way that's what's yeah. going on. I got I to come back to that for a second. I don't understand why. In the, I, I thought it was a little ridiculous that Scott had to be recused. And the idea that now, by extension, given what he said publicly, I think that okay, what I said is what I said. I but the idea that that two other judges in any way su- hey, suffer listen, some kind of I, I w- but to be clear, they voluntarily recused, right? This was not anyone else telling them they had to. Yeah, but why? Well, that, that, take that up with them. Shouldn't they have to explain that? Uh, well, you want to get into a longer conversation about whether recusals have to be explained? I mean, we could talk about the Supreme Court and how they never explain why they're. No, recusing. I think I think it's problematic. But right. anyways, so but here's an interesting footnote though. So so. Two quick notes on this. One, why has there been no effort to put more judges on the CMCR? Now, my sense is <laughs> there actually has been effort. Indeed, I have it on pretty good authority that particular people have been approached about whether they'd be interested in serving on the CMCR, and either they've said no, or they've said yes, and the White House has said no. There's a shocker. But so maybe this will finally create some movement on that front? Maybe. Yeah, All right. But yeah. here's the weird footnote. I know, this certainly doesn't make you want it. For those who are voluntarily oh. saying no, this isn't going to help. No, no, no. But let's talk about Judge Herring for a second. Okay. So, yeah, you said you want to come back to that I did one. want to come back to Judge Herring. 
Judge Herring is one of the military officers um, whose confirmation to the CMCR helped to provoke the litigation that is Dalmazi, right? Ah. Um, and one of the things that the government had argued in the Supreme Court in Dalmazi was that there really isn't a difference functionally between a military officer who is assigned to the CMCR and one who's appointed. In both circumstances, the government argued in its merits brief, the officer can simply be reassigned off the court by the Secretary of Defense, which in reality is the DOD General Counsel, pursuant to Section 949BB4, right? The Signifying what? That there's still military officers even when not And that, and that therefore the difference between a military officer who's assigned to the CMCR, one who's appointed, really isn't that big a deal and shouldn't like bear on, helps to sort of prove that this is not a civil office, right? That basically it's not a civil office and that there's no commander-in-chief problem with putting military officers on this court where they can't be removed except for a good cause. Ah, okay. okay. Um, we had always suspected that, in fact, right, it was totally possible for a military officer to be appointed to the CMCR and then retire from the military, not the CMCR. And stay, and stay, and on, stay on the CMCR. Because once you're appointed to the CMCR, there's no statutory provision for removal or retirement or anything. So the stage is set. Enter from stage left. Judge Herring. So we, um, <laughs> Judge Herring uh, retired from the United States Army effective July 31st, 2017. You learned this how? Um, Is this, th th this was in the note? This was not in the note. Oh. Um, so Judge Herring's retirement, I believe, is a matter of public Okay, record. yeah, no, no. I thought, you, I thought it was, I was setting you up for the footnote. Oh, no, the footnote's coming. All right. um, no, we learned from this order issued last Wednesday that he's still on the CMCR. Gotcha. That's it. Right. So All this right. order confirmed something we had suspected but had no proof of. It's a separate office. Which is that it's a separate office. Yeah. Um, and so, so I had to do the super awkward thing of filing a supplemental letter with the Supreme Court last week. Be like, hey, guys. Interesting development down here in Guantanamo. So super awkward, but I bet you loved it. Oh, you, had, you had to enjoy every second, every letter, every. I'm like, this is fun. Now you feel awkward, right? You don't want you don't want to sort of be overly argumentative in such a letter. You, yeah, want, you to want to point out, like, here's why this is matters. Yo, check this out. Speaks for itself. And oh, by the way, I don't think it's that bad to sort of get the justices to see just how ridiculous the CMCR is. No, that, that's that's probably right. So two birds with one stone there. Maybe that opinion was about to drop, and then your letter derailed it. And yeah, I don't think so. I, I think it's still pen. I, I mean. You know, but okay. So let's let's but let's pivot to our Scotus Celtics. We did get one more opinion from January. That's right. Collins Curtilage. versus Virginia. Curtilage. Curtilage. Right. So this is a this was a non-national security case. It's just about whether the automobile exception to the warrant clause still applies when someone drives their car onto the property immediately adjacent to their house, aka the curtilage. So I, you know, just to say that is to raise an interesting question. Like, go back to why do we have an automobile exception right. to the warrant? Uh, warrant clause to begin with, right? Um, and what would you say the sort of standard account is? Uh, the standard account is that you know cars are are different. Are they're a special kind of property, yeah. right? They can be lethal weapons, right? They're they out there on the roads. Dangerous. They are themselves dangerous. They could hide dangerous objects within reach. All of kinds of like, now that's obviously been. You've had situations where someone's out taken out of the vehicle, right? But then they're still searching the car. It's kind of got this zone, but not of, the trunk. But not the trunk, right? right? So, 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 it, one so of the readily accessible we areas. Our, we teach our criminal procedure students, right, that, you know, the automobile exception means that the police don't need probable cause to search the grabbable area in the interior of a passenger compartment, but they do if it's not grabbable. So so hatchbacks kind of suck from that perspective, I guess, if you don't have like this It's the all grabbable or a trunk. suburban. 
Yeah, right, right. Um, all right. Anyway, so anybody who's got kids in the backseat like I do knows how far-fetched grabbable is in the context of a suburban. Amen. But so with regard to call, I mean, so Collins, non-national security case. Interesting lineup, though. You had Justice Sotomayor. We'll come back to why that's interesting. Writing for an eight-to-one majority, only Justice Alito dissented. Justice Thomas in the concurrence is like, oh yeah, by the way, that whole exclusionary rule, right? Not sure it applies to the states, states right? Because this was Virginia, Commonwealth yes. of Virginia. Um, anyway, but so there, that, that was the only I think there were three Supreme Court rulings on Tuesday. Um, that was the only one that I think was really particularly yeah. noteworthy. None of the big ones. None of the big ones. No Carpenter. But anyway, so the no, only thing. No the, cakes. The point no of interest. Cell phones, no, no gerrymanders. No travel ban. Um, the point of interest to me is that takes one more uh, author off the board from ah, January. So Sotomayor is off, off the board. But so. this is consistent with what I think it you is. and others were predicting, that Kennedy or Roberts Not have. Kennedy, we're back to, that's, that's back to October and December. Okay, straighten me out here. Give all me right, the so, la- so layout. All that's outstanding from October is Gill, the, the Wisconsin gerrymandering case. The only justice without a majority assignment from October appears right. to be the chief justice. Which could be the most important decision. Oh, although, uh, although that the chief has it says to me it might be going out on standing. But we'll come back to that. Yeah. Um, December, you've got Carpenter and Masterpiece Cake Shop, and you've got The Chief and Kennedy. Right. So I think the That's conventional I wisdom of. is that Kennedy has Masterpiece Cake Shop, of course. and The Chief has Carpenter, much like he had Riley, right, the big mm-hmm. sort of searches into arrests digital privacy mm-hmm. case from a couple mm-hmm. of years ago. January, there are now three cases outstanding. Um, Florida versus Georgia, this ridiculous interstate dispute that I have no idea why it has taken them five months Isn't to that decide. The, that should be the name, if it's not already, of a bar right on the line. Florida, well, well there's mean, Florida-Bama on the Florida-Alabama no, no, line. There's the Florida-Georgia line. That's a band. Well, I know it's a band. I was saying it should be a bar oh. on the line, just well, like Florida-Bama. Or it ha- Florida versus Georgia. Uh, the world's great, the world's largest outdoor cocktail party. <laughs> no, that's the Florida that, Georgia. Yeah, game. Yeah, yeah. They play it in Jacksonville. Um, so Florida versus Georgia is outstanding. Um, this case, Husted versus the Philip Randolph Institute, which is this really important case about Ohio trying to cut people off of its voter rolls just because they haven't voted in a couple of elections, and Dalmazi. And there are three justices left: uh, Breyer, Alito, and Kagan. <laughs> Who got the short straw? Well, so this is the thing, right? So, <laughs> so the the it would not surprise me one iota. If Breyer or Alito has Houston, because they were both active in oral argument, mm-hmm. Breyer, right. I could see Breyer writing an opinion that goes with the righties. I could see Alito writing a 5-4 opinion, right? The question is, who has Florida versus Georgia? Because if one of Breyer or Alito has Florida versus Georgia, then Kagan, then Kagan has Don Watson. Is that good for you? The only way I... I I don't think <laughs> there's doesn't really matter who gets it. So, so here's the thing. I have said all along that the justice I would most want writing this case is Justice Kagan, right? That of, of all the justices, the one who I think could see all the like yeah, 36 yeah. layers no, all that's the way right. down is Kagan. Right. That doesn't mean I win, but it means that, no, like, but she is. She seems especially likely to see the intra-executive complexities of it. Precisely. Obviously. And so, so, so the. But don't you want Kennedy so that you could have that shot at overruling uh, Marbury versus Madison? No, I don't want Kennedy. <laughs> I want Kagan. All right, and, and, and it looks like there's a you know you might get it. Um, okay, um, it still doesn't mean I win, but I'll take it. If I can't convince Justice Kagan, maybe I should you know leave show business. There we go. Um, all right, so that's Supreme Court Michigas. Um, really quickly, let's pivot to sanctions land. Yeah, let's in, in the interest oh, by of the way, time. Sorry, really quickly, yeah. last next Supreme Court decision day next Monday. Next Monday. All and right. So there are 29 decisions outstanding. There are only four more scheduled decision days. I think it's quite likely they're going to add a couple of extra, probably Thursdays, perhaps as early starting as next week. They're going to have to. Yep. All right, buckle up. Buckle up. Um, So let's just be real quick, really quick on this. Uh, In sanctions land, uh, I want to flag the fact that the White House is talking about uh, 
car import sanctions. I think a lot of people have heard about this. Um, you may have missed that the stated justification, as I understand it, is once again, national, national security. security. And I got to say, it's beginning to take the shape, Steve, of a <laughs> hypothetical where you say in class, all right, so the president gets ex uh, a lot of deference, a lot of deference on the national security justifications, especially uh, shades of Curtis Wright when exercising delegated statutory authorities, right? So it's foreign affairs, et cetera. It seems very Curtis Wright-like. Um, and if you were in class trying to test the boundaries of the deference principle, you might start coming up with kind of silly examples where there are assertions of national security justification for an action under the statute that, that just looks that just don't seem to pass the laugh test like banning all travel from six muslim majority countries oh i'm sorry i thought we were still in scotus land i i think <laughs> I, whatever one thinks about the travel ban i think saying that uh a tariff on car imports for national security reasons is I'm just causing confer trouble. i know you are but i i think it's a very useful exercise right because it's like in class you have points on the spectrum, wherever you think about the travel ban, uh, it seems like car tariffs, uh, you know, Just don't get people excited. I gotta say it, it might be different if there was some notion that, Hey, the, uh, the car industrial base is really important to the way we fight wars. I don't think that's remotely true as a descriptive matter. I think the only national security justification, I mean, I, I'm happy to be corrected if I'm missing some nuance. I think it's got to just be some sort of broad, just sort of general claim about the importance of having the whatever employment uh, benefits are thought, and I think probably incorrectly, but thought to come from having more uh, uh, tariffs on it imported cars so that supposedly you'd be selling more uh, homegrown cars. And I just don't think that holds up on its own merits, but it seems like this is one just begging for a challenge. Um, secondly, let's just flag the fact that as part of the larger tussles with China on trade, um, the president, I think, quite infamously proclaimed his concern about the loss of Chinese jobs that flowed from the commerce, the, the action um, in against ZTE, the, the Chinese telecom uh, manufacturing company, that had violated the Iran sanctions of all things and then flouted the terms of the consent decree that, or whatever the, the terminology is, maybe it was the plea agreement, uh, that had settled that prior overt violation. Um, I think, Steve, the current status is that the Commerce Department has been directed to look into the president's request that the sanction be uh, lightened in some fashion that would keep the company from going out of business. Um, that review has not yet run its course. And in the meantime, there's now legislative activity as, as members of the House and the Senate, like Senator Rubio, uh, express, I think, some very well-justified uh, unhappiness with what the president's proposing to do here. It's all tangled up in, I think, larger White House claims about negotiations with China on trade matters. But it looks a little funny at the same moment that we're laying into our own allies about possible violations of trade sanctions by them if they're not careful going forward with respect to Iran when we're taking uh, such a pro-Chinese job, make China great again type position on, on the back end. All right. Uh, enough sanctions land. Let's look north of the border real quick. North of the border. North eh? of the border. Um, the reason we're talking very briefly about Canada is that it's, there was... It's a boot dignity. It's a boot dignity? A boot. A boot? Yes. Okay. Um I can't I, do that I, accent. I'm I'll leave gonna, that to I'm, you. I'm going to get so yeah. Craig is coming for me so hard. Let's put in a plug for our, our, our sister podcast. We are officially claiming uh, siblinghood with the, uh, the, the podcast. The podcast. Is it the podcast called Intrepid? I think so. Uh, 
Craig Forcise and Stephanie Carvin, who are awesome and have a show covering all things national security from the Canadian perspective. I got to say that well, it's at Intrepid Podcast, but it's a podcast called Intrepid. That's what I thought. Um, it's it's got a lot in common with our show. I challenge them to become more frivolous at times so they can match us. For I know they're way too silliness. serious. Yeah, they work into frivolity. But I mean, guys, just because a Canadian team is not in the Stanley Cup again oof, is not a reason oof. to sort of, you know, Ouch. leave yourself to all of this. You are going to cause a binational incident. Uh, so what's going on here? This is a uh, story that's in Canadian news right now about the uh, sort of a FOIA-style information request that pried loose from the government a, a short briefing memo that t- from a couple of years back when the conservatives, I think, were still in, in power, um, talking about the fact that th- in three instances at least, known Canadian citizens were purposefully targeted uh, in, in the fight against the Islamic State in Iraq or Syria. And it's just an interesting sort of insight into the fact that they have that other countries in the coalition have similar debates as we do. Uh, we tend to think of the Alalaki situation as the paradigm of when can you use force against your own citizen in the context of these overseas uh, asserted context of armed conflict scenarios. And so Canada is having a little bit of a kerfuffle of its own. The memo talks a little bit, uh, according to the reporting about, uh, look, it's a context of armed conflict. The memo uses language, apparently, of how these are enemy combatants. I think, actually, that's probably just sort of, you know, bullet-pointed, talking-point language. It's not actually clear that the Canadian Armed Forces actually embrace the U.S. model, where the uh, use of force is justified on a combatancy model, where you've got status-based targeting of people deemed to be unlawful, but nonetheless combatants, as opposed to a model which they may follow, I don't really know, um, of categorizing these as civilians who are directly participating in hostilities, either on a revolving door basis or at least when they're being targeted. Um, If any listeners out there uh, know the answer to where Canadian Armed Forces uh, LOAC theory is, Hmm. we want to hear about it. We can do some comparative law. Pedro and Craig and Stephanie and and Kent Roach, our friend at the University of Toronto. All sorts of great national support. Poor Toronto. So the University of Toronto jumped on the Twitter the Twitter handle at UT Law. Oh and, man, and, that's and, our that should be ours. And sometimes I think they they get a little annoyed when when tweets that are clearly meant for us are sent to them. Well, you know they they, they should enjoy that. They, they should feel lucky to be included under the the aegis of uh, <laughs> the University of Texas. Uh, they have better weather. UT is at right UT. What are we at? Texas law at U Texas law at U Texas law. All right. Um, just, just, so, just so no one forgets where we are. That was north of the border, Steve. Can we go south of the border real quick, or to the things southern are, border? Things are pretty messy south of the border and at the southern border. So there are a couple of different headlines that broke over the weekend that got a little bit conflated and confused. One about how the Office of Refugee Resettlement in the Department of Health and Human Services has lost track of a large number of undocumented children. Um, who, for various reasons, Bobby, were unaccompanied either when they entered the country or at some point after immigration proceedings were completed. Separate from that story, and I think actually the far bigger story, um, is the separation of children from their parents at the border, um, which has been sort of a consequence. So let me back up a second. Um, It's always the case when the government stops someone who is surreptitiously crossing the border and chooses to prosecute them, that there's inevitably going to be some modicum of separation of the parents Mm -hmm. and the children who are not being prosecuted while the prosecution is going on. It's usually pretty temporary, right? The parents are usually sentenced to time served and kicked out of the country with their kids, right? What's changed in the last couple of weeks is the Attorney General and the Department of Homeland Security um, took up this no, uh, no, this zero tolerance policy, 
where basically they were going to start prosecuting every single person they could, including both folks who had surreptitiously crossed the border and were picked up by federal authorities and folks who were presenting themselves at ports of entry without lawful status, right? Including in some cases- Including asylum seekers? Asylum seekers, right? Which is the really crazy- Now, the asylum seekers can't actually, unless they have done something else wrong, there's no crime they're committing. Right, they haven't illegally entered. They're still being separated. Right. Yeah. And so the So it's a deterrence mechanism. Helping the word will spread. Hey, if you've got kids, don't even think about coming here. This terrible thing's gonna happen exactly. to you. Exactly. So I wanna say just sort of two really quick things about it. so the law here, right? The statute gives the I mean, there's no question I think that the statute gives the government the authority to do this. Right. There's a constitutional question that I think is now being litigated in the federal district court in Brownsville, or I think it's in Laredo, um, right, over whether there's some kind of substantive due process issue with separating asylum seeking parents who have committed no crime, who present themselves at a port of entry for inspection from their children, right? Whether the government just is acting irrationally or arbitrarily in doing it, or perhaps not meeting some higher standard. Right, will, will that be measured by, will the doctrinal test be the shocks to the conscience standard? I don't know. I mean, that's, it, it's a hard question, right? Because as arriving aliens, that's the legal term, it's not my term, right? right? They don't necessarily have due process rights. And so, you know, it may just be sort of, the government can do anything that's not arbitrary and capricious, doesn't shock the conscience. This is gonna be messy. The, the, key, that I, the, the key point I wanna make though is, the separation of itself is not brand new, right? That there were some cases during the Obama administration where this happened. Yeah. The, the scale of it is what is staggeringly new, right? That because of the zero tolerance policy, yeah. you're seeing separation in every case, which is doing a couple of things. It's exhausting the capacity of the government to hold these children away from their parents. And from my perspective, it is a horrifying development from just a pure basic human decency point. I mean, you know. Do you, but I assume you would say that about the original, whoever was the first one to do it. Yeah. I, Obama probably wasn't the first administration to do it either. No, it started earlier than that. So listen, I think if there's a specific, if there's a case specific reason why it's imperative, right? So you've caught a violent recidivist felon re-entering right. the country for and the 11th make, time. he throws out there an asylum claim. And, and he has a kid with him, right? Who he claims right. is his biological child. Like I can understand the government's argument in that case for wanting to prosecute the adult and separate him from yeah. the now child. You're objecting to the zero tolerance. It applies in all cases. Because I think you're, you're, you're catching. So uh, we've talked briefly before about the difference between mass indiscriminate detention and case specific and to me, that's what's going on here, right? What's going on here is a pivot from case-specific justifications for separating parents from their like 18-month-old children to just doing it categorically for no other reason than deterrence. And I just, I have real problems, you know, not as a statutory matter, but just with with this as a as the idea that this is how we're conducting ourselves. Is it possible this is going to generate some case law that clarifies the doctrinal status of claims to due process rights? Maybe. I mean, at, so for I mean, people present at the border, or at the very least, that we're going to have another sort of example of a sort of quote rational basis holding that's really rational basis with bite, right? Where where even though the court's not inclined to recognize some kind of heightened scrutiny on the part of arriving aliens, they're so. Um, Troubled by the government's conduct. Do they have to accept that there's a constitutional claim to begin with, though, before you can even get to rational basis their view, let alone rational basis with bite? Well, presumably, do I mean presumably, you know, Plyler versus Doe, right, stands for the proposition that at the very least, the government has to have a rational. You know, the government can't act just arbitrarily, even when it's acting against folks who may not have due process protections. Um, but then this leads me to my last point, which is the 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 point about this that I find completely abhorrent is President Trump blaming the Democrats and saying this isn't his fault, right? <laughs> this is 
the, so yes, there have been separations before. The categorical mass, non-individualized separation of parents from their children is solely a byproduct of the new zero tolerance policy that this administration has itself been, you know, no, no question. It's about. completely ridiculous to try to blame the Democrats for but, that. And leaving that aside, if you actually think it's horrible, President Trump, guess what? Who sets enforcement priorities for the federal government? Now, do you think he doesn't see that? Do you, you, don't, you know he's jerking the chain of people like you, Steve, when he points on Twitter, says, hey, this is the Democrats. You know he chuckles as he does it or whoever does this yeah, for him. I know. But, like, I mean, you know, let's – I hope that – That they, doesn't mean you have to take it and right, be like – I hope there yeah. are folks out there who understand when he says that just how ridiculous a statement that is, right? That, that, first of all, you don't need a statute to fix this. Second, even if you did, again, you don't, Right. You have Republicans controlling both houses of Congress, right? right? This is this is another species of what we see in Trumplandia when he talks about you know information being withheld from him. Right. No accountability when it's entirely his his decision whether or not to ask right. for that information. There's, just, there's no accountability. There's no moral leadership. There's just it's just how can I exploit the situation to rev up my base and to and to piss off the you, other side? You know, my view is that it's best not to well, let him jerk your chain right. on this. Speaking of Trump, and, what else have and we got? Chain jerking. So. <laughs> Um, I think it's it, a rather interesting thing happened over the weekend. That does not sound good. Yeah, Go well, ahead. you know. Um, so Trey Gowdy. Oh, yeah. Went on uh, the Sunday shows and said, hey, so we had this meeting last Thursday where we actually got to see all the super secret intelligence about this the spot in relation in the yeah. campaign. This is relating to the president's claim right. that some sort of worst scandal ever. Yeah, the FBI, totally. The, the Obama FBI put a spy in How my campaign they? or spies in yeah. my campaign. Gowdy says, yeah, no. Not at all. No. no. No, everyone who's been in on these briefings has. Well, no. So Nunes hasn't said a word. Well, right. No one. No one is. No one. Even Nunes hasn't this is tried to claim Nunes. Right. So, so Devin Nunes has been very quiet for the last six days. Yeah, no, it's good. Let's not knock that. Let's. Good job, uh, Trey Gowdy, who ever since uh, announcing he's not seeking re-election has been increasingly responsible, and, yep. and in this case, I think doing a signal service. Yep. To the country yep. by appearing on Fox, no less, and to, saying, to resist this conspiracy theory listen, mongering. Fox, to its dare I say credit, right? Tw- you know, did not bury this. Like they tweeted out, this, they tweeted it out. Um, Shep Smith talked about it. Uh, judge, judge, I don't call him judge. He's not judge anymore, right? I Napolitano agree. talked about that, that it, guy. right? That guy Napolitano. So you know, I just want to say, yeah. Spygate is dead, right? And and you know, of course it's dead. Yeah, should be dead. It should. It is dead. We'll but, see. But there ought to be a reckoning. For all of the people out there who spent the last couple of weeks, you know, arguing that there was this huge conspiracy. That, that's the least of the things to add to the giant pile of things for about, which we need about, a reckoning. How about a credibility sort of like, you know, these people, you know, like folks like Andy McCarthy who's out there saying, you know, look at the, you know, it is spying. It's really no, it's I, spying. I, so if, if what you mean is there needs to be a reckoning for people who know better, who should know better, yeah. who are touting these sorts of things and trying to add to the conspiracy uh, fire. Jonathan Turley, right? Like enough of this already, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, if Trey got, so, so my favorite thing was, so apparently this morning, the sort of Twitter farm, Twitter bot land, um, their new thing is that Trey Gowdy is the latest, you know, re- revealed Trey Gowdy is secretly a member of the deep state. Oh, so aha, have to say, I knew it. Guys, this is the guy who did the Benghazi investigation. No, no, that's the brilliant, cover of the, the brilliant cover of the deep state, Steve, as you well know. By the way, the Benghazi investigation that went on way, 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 way longer than the Mueller investigation and returned zero indictments as opposed to the 19 indictments we've already gotten from Mueller. Which has not stopped people from routinely claiming online that there's been no indictments, no findings of any crimes. There's like, there's like all this crime that's been found and people live in a different world from those facts. Uh, facts? What are facts? All right. 
Speaking of things that are not factual, should we move on to the frivolity? Well, no, because we're not done with Trump. But I have to say, can I just say one quick thing about facts? Uh, Yes. Do you mind? Uh, I I will not pre-commit myself. Depends on what you say. Um, So, um, this is one of my favorite, and by favorite I mean horrifying quotes from Hannah Arendt, The Origins of Totalitarianism. The ideal subject of totalitarian rule is not the convinced Nazi or the dedicated communist, but people for whom the distinction between fact and fiction, i.e. the reality of experience, and the distinction between true and false, i.e. the standards of thought, no longer exist. (laughs) Um, Okay, well, there's that. And then there's also her longer quote. One could make people believe the most fantastic statements one day and trust that if the next day they were given irrefutable proof of their falsehood, does this sound familiar? They would take refuge in cynicism and would admire the leaders for their superior tactical cleverness. So what is to be done? Um, people need to grow up. People need to, like, you know, sort of stop tribalizing everything and to actually have no, some No, I'm really serious. Like, ha- sure, that sounds great. If I could snap my fingers, I'd do that in a heartbeat. We but- need more Trey Gowdies. People are, like, right, folks who don't, you know, folks, I am already, I mean, I, I take myself as an example, right? Like, you know, people sort of dismiss me, even, like, long, one of the things I want to talk about, right? Like, long legal analyses, you know, people don't even engage in the analysis. They say, oh, whatever, you're right, you're, you're on biased. the other team. You're, you're on the other team. Right? So you need people who are perceived as being on the team who are more emphatically speaking out. Right. And, so that, that, and that's why I'm so pleased with what Trey Gowdy did. Right. And, of course, immediately the, the solution then, of course, is to ostracize him from the team. Well, right. But, you know. This is why all, all of us never Trumpers, which, you know, I very proudly, uh, surprise, surprise, <laughs> count myself among. Um, we're, we're not considered, you know, credible sources either. Because just by definition, well, you're not coming from a sympathetic perspective. But so, this is why, so this is why I'm bothered by the new attack on the Mueller investigation. So the last thing I wanted to say before we turn to frivolity, right, is there's this new thing going around by Steve Calabresi, who's a professor at Northwestern. It's a nine-page opinion on the constitutionality of the Mueller investigation. An opinion. An can opinion. You, can you, can I just like, and pronounce the things I say to be formal legal opinions, like fatwas. So, so Calabresi has this theory that I've seen in sort of the crazier, you know, some of my crazier replies on Twitter and my crazier mentions um, that the whole Mueller investigation. For, forget the debate that we've talked about before about whether protecting Mueller from removal without, with you know, without good cause is constitutionally problematic under Morrison. That's nothing compared to what Calabrese is arguing. What's he arguing? He's arguing that the whole investigation is constitutionally illegitimate because Mueller is basically a principal officer for purposes of the Appointments Clause. And even if he's not, he's exercising authority that only a principal officer can exercise. And the best answer to that? Well, so it's actually two different... So I, I, I demolished this, I think, on Twitter and in a Just Security post last week. But there are two basic... The first point is, he's actually arguing two different things. The first is that the office is a principal officer, and that's just baloney. I mean, Eric Posner and I have a He's long, removable. Um, well, it's not just that he's removable. By, in, by other officers. By other officers. Um, every single sort of criteria that was relevant to the court right. in no, Morrison... No, this isn't a hard question. Right, okay. The, the harder argument is that he's acting like a principal officer. And the thing is... <laughs> that's an interesting doctrinal twist. Well... The, cl- the problem is, is that it sounds like a fancy constitutional law claim. It's actually not. If you peel it away, what he's really saying is Mueller is actually exercising more authority than legally he's allowed to, right? Which is not a constitutional argument about the appointment. That's clause. just an ultra vires argument. It's an ultra vires argument that he's exceeding his statutory and regulatory authority. That assumes a lot of facts about what the scope of that authority is ver- as compared to what the scope of his investigation exactly is. Exactly right. That's kind of like the Manafort argument, which has been rejected. But by Judge Jackson in a 37-page opinion two weeks ago that Calabresi nowhere mentions, cites, or disagrees with. Right. So like all I'm saying is, you know, there are points on which there can be reasonable disagreement in today's culture. But for folks like Steve Calabresi, a fairly well-respected, you know, federal society professor at Northwestern to 
put this out there. Federal Society had a, a teleform conference call on Friday where only Calabresi was presenting. Like, did people get to ask questions? They did. I, you know, I'm not a member, so I didn't get yeah. to hear it. But like the, you know, this is the anti-Trey Gowdy to me. Like this is perpetuated. This is like injecting into this whole messy time. What to me are frivolous constitutional arguments that can only sort of in, you know inflame and enrage the folks who need to be listening to sober minds. You know, it would that we got to the place with the Mueller protection legislation yeah. that it could be litigated whether it's constitutional. The real hard question isn't so. You know, I don't think Congress is going to decide whether or not to pass it based on the constitutionality of it. That's a cover. Yep. Um, as last I heard, there's still no interest from the leadership in allowing it to come to the floor. Nope. But maybe, I mean, you know, maybe that will change if Trump gets closer to firing him. I mean, there's you saw the story yesterday about Sessions and how yeah. close Trump came to getting rid of Sessions and the pressure he put on Sessions to unrecuse. There's kind of a boy you cried wolf sort of oh quality to what goes on here. And you wonder, like, how much of that is actually strategic? Keep, yeah. keep getting close to the flame so that on the seventh pass, you can strike. But meanwhile, this is after the president tweeted, you know, earlier this week. Uh, wait, I want to find that. I, I recommend that you don't look at his tweets <laughs> Sorry, anymore. I've got to start focusing my energy on North Korean nuclear. Like, you know, I'm done talking yeah. about this. Yeah. All right, anyway. <laughs> well, um, that'll last. Frivolity, Cold War. Speaking of North yeah. Korea and nuclear, let's talk about, you know, things blowing up in the Cold War. All right, so our last round of frivolity, which was so much fun, we had, we had the uh, boy bands, then we had one-hit wonders, and that led after a particular song was referenced as a great one-hit wonder. Uh Oh, 99 Luft Balloons. Yes, Nina's 99 Luft Balloons, or in the English, uh, 99 Red Balloons. They had the red. Um, and we pointed out how that was a, a classic kind of Cold War anxiety mm. song. And so I raised the idea for this week, let's have great Cold War song, pop songs. Right? And I suggested at the end of last week's episode that the conversation starts and ends with We Didn't Start the Fire. Right, Which and I and I mocked that suggestion. I We certainly heard from some listeners who Agree were with, with you. With you. I, I, question I, I, I don't recall thing. hearing from any listeners I, who I will say this. I will modify my opinion only to this extent. I don't like that song. However, Billy Joel's tour, yeah. his tour to Russia, yeah. Apart from the song, right. this his tour was great. That was a nice, important moment and good illustration of the cultural power of a free and open society. Um, and there's a lot of examples like that. Billy yeah. Joel did some good there. He sure did. And I just like his other music so much more and don't like that particular, uh, the, the, his later stuff. All right. So, so as I think I've, I've betrayed on this podcast before, before I was really into music, I was into Weird Al Yankovic. <laughs> I've so, not heard that before. That's so, awesome. So I'm going to throw out there Christmas at Ground Zero, right? A Cold War anxiety song. What was that to the tune? Of? I don't remember or what was it an original. Song. It might have been an original one, right? Uh, it's Christmas at Ground Zero. The button has been pressed. The radio just let us know that this is not a test. <laughs> That's awesome. Everywhere the atom bombs are dropping. It's I, the end of all humanity. I had a cassette, a Weird Al cassette at one point. I don't remember which what it was called, but I think it was the one that had Lost on Jeopardy. On oh, it. early. Which, which early was a Weird Al. It was a really fine take. Was that on also a, like a surgeon? It might, I don't think that was the same one. This mm. was this was earlier because that was based on the Greg Kinn mm. song. Uh, Yoda? Uh, yo, 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 based on Lola. Yeah, nice. Yeah, that's one of my favorites. All right. uh, we may have to have a Weird Al, uh, best do, of Weird we'll, Al. We'll do a weird, maybe next week we'll do a Weird Al frivolity. But Pop. you you actually took this seriously and I did not. So why oh, don't you I've always loved this theme. So uh, look, you know the real reason I want to talk about these things is so we could talk about how you define the categories. So I have a question for you, Steve. <laughs> um, when we think about Cold War theme songs, do we have to exclude things that are sort of uh, theater specific? Because, for example, Vietnam right. certainly fits in a certain I mean, way like of All thinking. of Miss Saigon. Right. You, you have an endless number Good of songs. Night, all kinds of great music, rock and otherwise, right. came out of uh, Vietnam-related yeah. matters. Yeah. I feel like that's got to be just a genre of its own. Yeah. Okay. Like anti-war music as opposed to Cold War music. 
Yeah, especially when it's particular to a yeah. to a, you know it's anti draft musical yeah. what have you yeah. the fortunate son. Yeah. Um, of course, that causes me to have to drop one of my favorite things that it has sort of that that Reagan era anxieties uh, theme to it. U2's Bullet the Blue Sky, mm-hmm. which is a sort of a uh, the American role in Central America. Famously, uh, Bono and the boys were down in El Salvador and had a had a strong reaction to what they perceived was going on in Central America. And Bolt the Blue Sky is an amazing piece of art that came out of that. So I think what does that leave us with if you exclude that sort of stuff? And I would argue that basically what we're talking about here are songs that are about great power, superpower rivalry. And there's kind of two species. There's the fear of nuclear war. Yeah. Christmas of Ground Zero. And you got all, and so there's a whole, and there's an endless genre of tomorrow we're all going to die. You right. know, 1999 is a good example. There's there's so many songs that just kind of pick up on the theme. You know, Melt With You, I think actually, mm. ironically, from last week is is also sort of a fear of, fear of the nuclear apocalypse. And then you have songs that are just kind of expressing anxiety about America versus the Soviet Union and the military aspects. And the best stuff comes from, I think, from European bands that are kind of coming out from the point of view of, oh, man, what might happen here when the, when the two big powers right. go at each other? And so a good example well, especially is— when they're, Especially when Berlin was still—Berlin and Germany was still—East-West Germany was still, like, the most obvious sort of— Absolutely. Of, and so friction. it's kind of con- fears, fears in Europe in general, continental Europe in particular. Um, I think the fix— Cy Kernan and the boys in The Fix with Red Skies at Night and Stand or Fall are both um, really good examples of sort of war anxiety music. Um, to take a <laughs> totally different example, one of my favorite sort of, uh, I think, late 80s, early 90s, definitely 80s, into the early 90s, um, not quite a glam rock band, but definitely sort of a hair metal band. Tesla, modern day cowboy with a great line about the USA and the USSR. Uh, Frankie goes to Hollywood Two Tribes. Uh, got a number of votes from listeners, I think rightly so. And then several people pointed out what may be just like the most explicit and direct Cold War anxiety type uh, song, and that's Sting, Russians. Russians. Yeah. yeah, which which is a beautiful song and, and has, as is often the case with Sting. Um, Elton John, Nikita. Yeah, yeah. What else? There's there's an inlet. When you go online and start looking for this, there there's too many. And, and right. I think they need to be a hit before you really. All right, how about When to Change, Scorpions? You know, I, oh, I think there's a limit. Oh, it's a terrible song. Oh, it's terrible. And don't get me wrong, Klaus Minor and the Scorpions, I love them. But I think that was not their strongest bit. I'll take uh, No One Like You or... How about early REM, Radio for Europe? Oh, that's a great one. I think, And, and I think that's more like cultural yeah. Cold War, yeah. right? Um, several people pointed out uh, for, a, for a bookend on this topic, Jesus Jones... Right here, right now, and an early '90s sort of end of Cold Cold War. From remember, it was such an optimistic time when the Iron Curtain had fallen, and there were uh, pro democracy movements breaking out left and right. And you get talk about the end of history. And right here, right now is a total one hit wonder that fits that uh, perfectly. If you want to go totally obscure, and this will be my last thing, go find the video if you can for an old uh, rock band called Rainbow. Can't happen here, mm. and that's that's definitely fits our theme as well. What about heroes? Uh, David Bowie. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's some wasn't, of the, wasn't it recorded in Berlin? Like, wasn't that part of the whole shtick? Like, it was like this very east westy kind of thing. Could be. There is. There's the whole genre of like building bridges at the human level through art. Yeah. Um, yeah. You can throw when, it back when in the in USSR. College, you know, I never went to go see if this was actually apocryphal. When I was in college, like one of my professors told us about the Valley of the Ignorant, like this little area of East Germany where because of the topography, they couldn't receive radio signals from the West. Oh. And so when the wall came down, like sociologists found that like they were actually 
10 to 15 years behind the rest of East Germany with regard to what music they listen to, how they dress, like all the stuff that you might have otherwise had access to by getting radio and TV signals from the West? So, so we would have thought the problem for truth would be lack of access to information. In today's world, it's kind of the opposite. Right, too much. Too much access. But well, we'll we'll save we'll 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 save. Hey, and I think this whole show <laughs> is proof of that. <laughs> Too much information. An expert in none of it except the legal stuff. But we'll save uh, deep fakes for later. Yes, we will. Um, by the way, we both had uh, uh, Cavs Warriors Part Four, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I was a little worried that the Rockets, until Chris Paul got hurt, look at the Rockets were going to make a I didn't have that like at a all. run. Yeah, I, I didn't have that at all. No, not at all. No, you didn't. So the, what does the, the record reflect, my friend? Here's the thing about here's the thing about the Warriors. So I just want to say one thing about the Warriors, and then we'll go right. Um, the Warriors are really frustrating because what happens is, you know, they got to the third quarter, and like, oh, yeah, we're down like 10 or 15 yeah. points. Let's go on a run and fin- let, finish let, this. Let, let's go do our thing. And it's, they play 12 minutes of basketball. And it's and it's beautiful, and they're unstoppable. Um, I hate it because it, it reflects a disparity. Like the very style of the play yeah. that you just described shows you that there's a lack of parity that's being caused by everybody kind of super grouping onto a handful of teams. But also that like the Warriors aren't like I mean I think um, I think either Wilbon or Kornheiser said this on PTI yesterday that the Warriors don't have a killer right that you know Michael Jordan was a killer right LeBron yeah. is a killer right These they guys, don't seem to need one you don't need a killer if you have a bunch of super good but so but non killers. So, but so the result is you have these horrible games where the Warriors get outplayed for most of two and a half or three quarters. And then they turn on the afterburners. one, like, great run, and they build up enough of a lead, and then they hold off for the rest of the game. All right, do, so here's the real question. Yeah. Uh, can the Cavaliers take no. any games? Do you think it's oh. going to be a sweep? No, because the Warriors don't have a killer, so they'll let one go. Yeah. Right? No, Warriors in five. Okay, so I think LeBron is so darn good right now. I think the, the, he is going to single-handedly get them two. Oh, so you said so Warriors in six. six. Yeah, Warriors in six. Yeah, I think Warriors in five. Yeah. We'll All right. See. Well, well, well. I mean, you know, at the pace of the NBA Finals, by the time we record our next episode, it'll be Game Two. Oh heavens! I guess it'll be Game Three. Oh, well, maybe we'll have something to talk about by then. It has been a slow week. Hey, yeah, you know, this is a bit of a rambling episode. We didn't have a lot of. We, exciting we might need to stuff. actually like do some come up with something to do a deep dive about. So, hey, listeners, separate from frivolity, which might next week's frivolity might actually have to be like Weird Al, right? Um, <laughs> give us a sense. Are there things out there that are not necessarily at the top of the headlines that you'd actually like more of an explainer on? That you know, Bobby and I could tackle in the future episode. If not next week, then when there's another light week. Yeah, it, we maybe we've entered a valley of ignorance where we're just not going to have that much to talk about, and we're going to need this to, whole epi- this whole show is a valley of ignorance. Episode seventy six, the, the valley, valley of, of ignorance. ignorance. On that go. note, he's at Bobby Chesney. I'm at Steve underscore Vladik. We are at NSL Podcast. Tell your friends. Tell your favorite Cold Warriors. Um, and then when you're tell done, the Scorpions. Tell Klaus Miner. Tell Tell Nena. <laughs> and we'll, we'll, we'll see you guys next week. Stay safe out there. Adios.